You know, many of you know that last week, David and I were away at a conference and we had to fly to get there. And as is the case in airports, we had to go through the airport security. So I had to take off my belt and take off my shoes and take off my watch and my rings and my wallet. And, and then I had to go through that little x-ray machine. And then I walk out and then they have to, you know, check to make sure there's not something on my person. And, you know, we make it through. Now we know why uh, they do that. We want to rescue people or keep people safe from any potential of a, of a terrorist attack in an airplane or in the terminal. And I'm actually grateful. I'm grateful for that. Especially since we were coming home on the day of the Brussels attack. And so, so we recognize this, the safety they're, they're trying to bring to us. Yet, even with all of that, we know that we're not 100% safe. We, we don't have absolute assurance that we're going to be secure in the terminal or on the airplane. And you know, it's that lack of 100% assurance that causes some people to never want to fly, never want to go to an airport because they could be hurt. And, and I, I understand that to some degree. I mean, we as human beings don't like to feel insecure, do we? I don't think you wake up in the morning and say, man, I sure hope I have a lot of insecurities. You know, we, we don't like that kind of news that makes us feel tense. It could be a terrorist attack, or it could be somebody getting into a car accident and dying. Or it could be something like a coworker getting fired. You don't like those feelings. It's a loss of security. Because then it breeds a sense of fear. And when you have that sense of fear, you seek to try to have to reestablish this security. Now, I want you to pay attention to that process because this process is what we see throughout the text we're seeing this morning. Two different types of people who feel a loss of security, who respond with fear, and then try to have a reestablishment of security. Now, you, you might look at that and say, what in the world does a loss of security have to do with Jesus' resurrection? This is Easter. And you, I think you'll see it as we move along in the text of Matthew, chapter 27, starting in verse 62. And if you haven't turned your Bibles, go there. I'm going to read it in a moment. But let me just affirm again. We believe what Matthew records here really happened. This is the most phenomenal news we could ever, ever hear. And we cannot simply conjure this up. This really happened. Amen? The Apostle Paul said, And if Christ had not been risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. I stand up here week in and week out because Jesus rose from the dead. If he didn't raise from the dead, let's just go home. No point in being here. Our faith, futile. But he rose from the dead. And I pray that we would all see the truthfulness of this today. That the resurrection would come to you as a believer and excite greater 
joy in the Lord and that the resurrection message of Jesus, if you are someone who hasn't trusted in Christ, would call you to see the majesty of the Savior. Because the real difference, the difference between a real resurrected Jesus and a dead, decaying Jesus is the difference between life and death, light and darkness, and insecure fear versus secured joy. That's what we see in this text. Insecure fear versus secured joy. So we're going to start by reading the first portion of the text here. Matthew 27, starting in verse 62. We read, The next day, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure sealing the stone and setting the guard. Look again at the process. Loss of security, fear, reestablishing security. We see this trajectory in these verses with the religious leaders here. But before we dive into the verses, remember what's happened up until this point. Beginning in chapter 26, Matthew writes in such a way to show us the downward spiral of rejection by all different kinds of people. You have the disciples denying Jesus and betraying Jesus. You, you have the religious leaders conspiring against Jesus to try to bring him to court to eventually bring a crowd to a mob that would cry out, crucify him. Citizens of Jerusalem reject Jesus. Roman authorities and Roman soldiers reject Jesus. Then Jesus is on the cross and even the people being crucified on his right and his left are jeering at him, mocking Jesus. Now it would seem in the midst of all of this that the religious leaders won because Jesus lost everything. Didn't he? I mean, when he was on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost everything in that moment. Where when he was praying in the garden to endure the wrath of the Father, he was taking the wrath that sinners deserve. God was redirecting the wrath to Jesus so that those who trust in Jesus would not experience one taste of wrath from God. But Jesus lost everything. But did Jesus lose? No, see, Jesus won in that moment. Because Matthew wrote way back in chapter 1 of his record here that the Messiah came to save his people from their sins. And that's precisely what Jesus is doing there on the cross. Saving people from their sins. He's actually accomplishing the mission through experiencing the just punishment and terrors that sinners deserve while he is innocent. He purchased forgiveness. He purchased eternal life for people. 
But if Jesus purchased life, if Jesus did purchase eternal life, can Jesus stay in the grave? I only see some heads nodding no. Can Jesus stay in the grave if he purchased life? He can't stay in the grave if he purchases life. If he really did purchase salvation, if he really did grant forgiveness and eternal life, he can't stay in the grave. Death can't swallow him up in victory because he's victorious over the grave. So if Jesus was still in the grave, we'd have to agree with the Apostle Paul. We'd still be in our sins because Jesus was conquered by our sins. But we can boast in the death of Jesus because Jesus rose from the dead. And that's what we see here. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, don't believe anything I say this morning. But if Jesus rose from the dead, every human being is accountable to this Savior. Hear what he has to say because the resurrection changes everything. And so my question to you is, where do you stand in facing this Savior? Where do you stand? Are you like the religious authorities that we're going to study a little bit more on here? Are you like the religious authorities who want to embrace security in themselves and in their own ways, rejecting any idea of resurrection? Is that how you live life? Or... Are you like the disciples that we'll read about in a few moments who feel like they've lost everything and yet Jesus is their security? So we move into the religious authorities. They seek security in themselves. That's what I think we see in these verses here to start off. Now, Matthew gives us a time frame of what's about to happen and when this is happening. In the previous verses, we read that Jesus died and then Joseph of Arimathea prepared a place for Jesus to be buried and put into a tomb. And then Matthew writes, on the next day, that is the day of preparation, okay? The next day. Keep in mind that days to the Jews and in their accounting of days, their day began at sunset, Okay, so they didn't begin at midnight like we do. They begin at sunset. So Jesus died, if we were to account in our time frames, I believe Jesus died on Friday in the afternoon, which is one day. He's buried that same day before sunset. That's one day. Now we have the next day, Matthew says. This is day two. This is the Sabbath day. In the midst of this festal gathering, festal gathering in Jerusalem, the Sabbath day, and on this Sabbath day, when these religious leaders probably should be doing something else on this day of rest, they're banging on Pilate's door. They still have fears about something. Now, they're at a loss. They still feel like not, they're not totally 100% secure. And I want you to think about how crazy this must have sounded to Pilate. You know, they're coming to his door. Oh, please, we, we, need, we need a guard to go over to the tomb of this dead guy because we don't want the disciples to take the body out. And Pilate, you can imagine, is probably thinking something like, you've already done your worst. You've already killed the guy. How can you still be afraid of a dead man? 
And, and, and really, they did everything they could do in order to try to prove to the people that he's cursed of God. Remember? Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Who would follow a cursed man? Right? Yet they're still scared of what could happen with this, with this dead man. Verse 63 tells us what their fear is. They say to Pilate, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Do you remember at one point in time when Jesus was talking to uh, the religious leaders and they said, we want to seek a sign. We, we want you to give us a sign. And then you remember that Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But then he says, but I will give you a sign, one, one sign. And it's what we call the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days and three nights. The reason I bring that up is because we have a question. How, how did these religious leaders know that Jesus even taught on a resurrection? Well, it could have been that other religious leaders heard Jesus talk about it before. Or, as well, Judas betrayed Jesus and Judas heard teaching of resurrection and Judas could have told these religious leaders what Jesus taught. Nevertheless, I don't think that these religious leaders really believed Jesus was going to rise from the dead because you notice what their fear is. Their fear is that somebody's going to take the body out of the tomb and then they're going to think, oh, he's, he's risen from the dead, that the, that the disciples are going to maybe manipulate circumstances for their own benefits. And they say, if that happens, that's going to be a worse problem than having Jesus alive. Look at their wording in verse 64. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. I want to take a step back for a moment and I want to evaluate these leaders' hearts at this point. I I want you to grasp their phrasing of things. Did you notice in verse 63 what the, the, the term of address towards Pilate? What, what do they call Pilate? Sir. What do they call Jesus? What? Uh, imposter? And his teaching is fraudulent. What I think we see with these religious leaders is that the religious authorities have a greater respect for Pilate than for Jesus. And I want to emphasize that point because that's actually kind of shocking. Who were the Roman people to the Jewish people? They were the enemies. The Jewish people wanted freedom from Roman oppression. They didn't want the Romans to be over them. And yet somehow the religious leaders... Talk respectfully to Pilate, sir. They would rather see Jesus killed and hidden and forgotten and befriend an enemy. Why? When we know throughout the writing of Matthew that here we have... um, Here we have Jesus coming to this earth and and Jesus doesn't come primarily to conquer land. Jesus comes to conquer hearts. He comes to these religious authorities and says, your hearts need to be conquered as well. You You have run from God. You spurn God. You need to repent. You need life because you're rejecting God and you're rejecting me, Jesus says. And they don't want to hear that. 
Because if they embrace Jesus' message, they've got to give up all that they love, which is their power, their authority, their position, their moral, their right, their good. They don't need Jesus. So they would rather befriend an enemy than befriend the Savior. They feel the loss of security. They have the fear. They try to reestablish their security through murdering Jesus. And then, just to make sure, we're going to seal the tomb as well. That shows us the religious authorities have a greater desire for personal authority than for Jesus' authority as well. That's, that's their idol. That's what they worship. They worship themselves and their position. And before you think something like, man, those people, they're so bad. I would never stop. Have you ever done something that you knew God didn't want you to do and you did it anyway? Any, anybody in this room? Can we just have a raise of hands? Right? Keep them up. Keep, keep them up. Keep them up. Sinners. Right? It's true. It's true. I mean, I remember when my wife and I, when we were earlier on in our marriage and, and uh, oh, you realize how, just how much more selfish you are when you get married. And we would, we would argue about different things. Things that nowadays we would look back and go, that was so dumb. Who cares about that issue? Uh, but we would argue, you know, I, I, am, I am right. I know I'm right. And, and, and by default, you're wrong. Okay? And so, so sometimes we would argue because we just wanted, we, I just wanted to be right. Sometimes we, we would argue because I just want you to be more humble. Okay? It could be different reasons. But you know what? That, that's the heart attitude of the Pharisees and religious leaders here. They just want to be right. They just want to be in control. They just want to have power. And they will fight literally to the death in order to keep it. And listen, that's where all of our hearts would go apart from the grace of God. Because if we would do that in the seemingly small things, we would do it in the large as well. We as human beings love to climb the ladder. We love to be known by people. And especially, especially in this selfie culture, we want our faces, our experiences, our knowledge, our gifts, our talents, our abilities to be known by other people and spread to everyone and we long for people to like us. But then Jesus comes in and Jesus says, unless you deny yourself, and take up your cross and follow me. You cannot be my disciples. We recoil at that message. We hate that message. It's not about you. It's about God's glory and his first and foremost. But then what's amazing in all of that, Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will actually gain life. So when we understand that we really are self-centered wretches and then that Jesus provides salvation for wretches that saved a wretch like me, 
then we have greater life, greater joy. We have eternal life and peace with God forever. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But the religious leaders won't have it. And many of us in humanity, we don't like that message. We don't want to embrace it. We turn to our own selves again and again. And that's precisely what the religious leaders do here. They think they can handle Jesus. They've already handled Jesus, right? They put him to death. Now they have to handle his teaching. Can his teaching endure? We don't want the teaching of resurrection to continue to go on. So what they do in order to regain security is they turn to Pilate and to soldiers. That's how we're going to shut up the teaching of resurrection. So they get a guard of soldiers and they seal the tomb. And really the religious leaders have a greater security in guards than in the one being guarded. That's, that's where they're at. They think they can shut up Jesus. And you may, you may notice this, and maybe, maybe if you highlight words in your Bible, three times in three verses, there's the word secure. They're really looking for security from Jesus, apart from Jesus. All of this reveals their unbelief. It reveals their blindness to reality. It makes me think of the hymn, that says, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. Meaning that when you don't see life through the grid of God and his glory, you're blind to to even the things that you can see. All you can do is evaluate life on the basis of things that you see. And when you base your life on the basis of things that you see, What happens when those things you see fade away? Your your life is in havoc. See, it it fades away because your life was in the thing you saw. Earlier this month, I heard about the death of a missionary that a former church family of mine supports. This man left behind a wife and four boys. And I, I can't even imagine the loss that they're continuing to experience. But in a letter from the wife, she said of her boys that their hearts are broken and they're experiencing extraordinary grief missing their papa. Yet, instead of wallowing in sorrow, they've chosen to speak of God's goodness. As she continued on in her letter, she closed by saying, The boys and I are asking God to help us prove to the watching world here that God means what he says in his word. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ and his grace is sufficient for us. And then she signs the letter. Holding tight to the God of all comfort. Jennifer, Will, Grant, Luke, and Drew DeKrieger. Who are they clinging to? See, if they looked at just what their eyes could see, if that's all that they're running to, they'd be frantic, they'd be hopeless, they'd be grasping somewhere else to something else that they could see for their security. But who are they grasping for security? Jesus! Because Jesus is alive and Jesus keeps his promises. 
And he can comfort us through extraordinary grief. You have these religious leaders, and in their loss of security, they go to what is seen. The question for us is, will we go to what is seen, or will we go to what is unseen? And you could even be thinking here this morning, how could I have that type of security and assurance? And that's the right question to ask, because I believe that's where Matthew leads us into this text. We see in chapter 28 that Jesus grants far more than temporal security. So let's read the first 10 verses of 28. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the day, or as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Matthew again gives a time frame of what's happening here. And it's important for us to notice because Matthew is concerned about details and he is concerned about prophecies and prophecies fulfilled. Jesus did prophesy that he would raise from the dead in three days and he would then go to Galilee and meet the brothers. Has it been three days? Now some of you say, no, I've never understood that. It was Friday and then it's Sunday. That is not three days. Well, in how we count days, it doesn't make sense, maybe to us. But we also have to recognize that the word day has has differing meanings to it, doesn't it? I mean, for example, if you came to me and you said, you said, uh, man, I worked all day yesterday. And I said, you work from 12 midnight to 11.59 and 59 seconds? Whoa, that is all day. I I don't assume that. Okay? Words have meanings, and words have meanings in in the Jewish culture as well. They would refer to even three days and three nights simply meaning to different segment of days. Okay? It didn't have to be the full 24 hours for it to be that day. So if we go back to the time frame of how Jews would count their days, you have Jesus dying and being buried on day one before sunset. Then you have sunset to sunset, which is Sabbath, and that's the day that the, fair, or the, the religious leaders are trying to get um, Pilate and his approval to seal the tomb. And then you have the next sunset, and that's day three. We grasp that? So three different days. This is day three. Now we see what happens on the third day. Is Jesus' prophecy going to come true? Is, was it, were the religious leaders successful in keeping Jesus' body in the tomb and thus giving them security in their positions? Now, we recognize that other gospel writers give plenty of other details 
in the stories, but we're going to stick with Matthew's details that he gives here and try to follow his point. Matthew talks about two women here, and only two women. It serves his point that he's trying to make. Two women come to the tomb. And why are they at the tomb? We, we may not have an explicit reason here in this text. I think it is safe to assume um, that in that time in the ancient Jewish tradition, the Jews would visit tombs of deceased until the third day in order to affirm that that person was really dead. You remember the story of Lazarus when Jesus raised him from the dead and Jesus is there on the third day and Jesus goes up to the tomb and he wants the tomb to be opened and what, what, <laughs> what's, it kind of sounds like a funny response to us, but what do they say to Jesus when Jesus says he wants to see Lazarus? Oh, he stinks. And what, and what they're saying is he's really dead. I mean, he is past the point of no return. His body stinks. This is the third day. Clearly, he's not coming back. And I think that that's what's happening with these ladies. They're coming to the tomb, and I, I, I don't believe they're coming to the tomb in hope. I think they're coming to the tomb trying to confirm their greatest fears. They had placed all of their hope on Jesus, and he died, and it's the third day. And if his body is still there on the third day, there's no hope. Now, you could say, but wait a second, Jesus taught these people that he was going to come back from the dead. How could they not have been anticipating Jesus and his resurrection on the third day? Maybe the ladies were just sitting there going, when's he coming out? But that doesn't seem to be indicated in this text, even when the, angels talk to the, uh, the angel talks to the woman and says, you seek Jesus who was crucified. You seek a dead man. We, we get the idea that they were shocked by this. I mean, you have to remember when Jesus spoke he spoke in plain speech and parabolic speech, didn't he? And, it's, and, and, and I think probably for the disciples, they had a hard time deciphering between the two. So when Jesus died on the cross, their world is shattered in their minds. Nothing makes sense anymore. What did Jesus mean by what he said? I don't think they're thinking, oh, he's, he's raising from the dead. I don't know what's going on. But these women come Back to the tomb. Maybe a sliver of hope. But Matthew writes, and behold. Now that, that, that word behold or look in some translations, um, that word calls us to pay attention to what's happening here. It, it also, as one commentator says, it brings a sense of vividness to the situation. So, so as a reader, when you come across the word behold, you, you ought to stop for a second. Don't just scan over the word, and behold, blah, 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 blah. No, and behold, wait. Re-engage brain. Imagine the situation. The women, there, sorrowful. Jesus is dead. The tomb is sealed. Guards in front of the tomb. All hope is lost. And then an earthquake. What's going on? And there was an earthquake, remember, when Jesus died and breathed his last, too. So something phenomenal is taking place here. An angel comes down. An angel comes down. Clothes white as lightning. And, and, and this signifies purity and glory of heaven. And then, and then this angel, you know, no big deal, moves this stone that's tons, thousands of pounds, just moves it and uses it as a chair. 
powerful occurrence. And and so it's no shock to us that we read in verse 5, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. (laughs) Oh, I'm reminded of the psalmist who says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And the reason why I mention that verse is because the religious authorities put their trust where? In chariots. They put their trust in the soldiers of the day. Those are the people who are going to protect us. Those are the people who are going to give us security. But those who watched over the tomb of a dead man became like dead men in the face of supernatural power. No one can thwart God's power. All the armies of the earth are quenched under God's plan. You cannot overpower God. Amen? You can't. You can't overpower him. But I love the beauty of the next couple of verses, verses 5 and 6. It says, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. You notice that these soldiers are immovable in fear. The angel, in Matthew's account, does not speak to the soldiers. Who does he speak to? The women. Because they have fears as well. Any time an angelic occurrence happens, there's a level of fear and angels have to say, in most, many occurrences, do not be afraid. But the angel comes in love. The first thing Do not be afraid, women. Don't be afraid. Why? Why should they not be afraid? I mean, just because an angel came down and moved a a tomb away, his body could still be there. They haven't gone in yet. Why should they not be afraid? You know, Matthew actually begins and ends his book with angelic appearances. In the first chapter, you have an angel coming to Joseph and saying, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Why? Because this baby that is in her is brought about by the Holy Spirit. And, And you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And that's the hope. That's why Joseph should take Mary as his wife because the Savior has come. And this same type of hope comes here in this text. You seek Jesus who is crucified. Get this. He's not in there. Don't be afraid because what he did on the cross actually saved real people. He's risen from the dead and you can see, you can see he's not here. By the way, the tomb was open not to let Jesus out but to let the disciples in. Jesus was not there at that point in time. He was gone already. And so, by God's grace, he wants his disciples to be confident that Jesus rose from the dead. Go in the tomb and see. Is there a body there? No. Where could it have gone? He, the only answer is he's risen from the dead. You see, the religious leaders wanted the truth of resurrection or the teaching of Jesus to be squelched. 
But if Jesus' body really rose from the dead, you can't stop that teaching. Think about that progression of insecurity. Loss of security leads to fear to reestablishing security. The religious authorities felt insecure. They have the fears. They try to release their fears through murder and through sealing the tomb. The women, did they have a loss of security? Yeah. Jesus died. Did they have fears? Yes, by implication with the angel saying, do not fear. There's fears that they have. But where or how was their security reestablished? It was established in Jesus. They didn't try to reestablish it. The only thing that could bolster their confidence was Jesus and the resurrection hope. I mean, can you imagine what the women were thinking when they heard Jesus wasn't in the tomb and then they went in and saw nobody? And then... You know, I mean, this is all, uh, what? And how, and, and he's not there. And then the angel says, go quickly. Oh, yeah, right, right. We got to go. We got to tell them, get out, go, tell the people. You see here in this text that the resurrection of Jesus changes desires and mission. It moves them from fear to, to having, what it says here, fear and great joy. They have immense joy in the knowledge that Jesus rose from the dead and they have mission. Go tell. How can you not tell people? If you don't tell people, you don't understand he rose from the dead. I, I don't think you really believe he rose from the dead. If you're not telling other people he rose from the dead. There's a real Savior. Your greatest needs are met in him. And then Matthew adds here, tell, tell the disciples that, that he's going to be there in Galilee. Why? Why Galilee? I mean, that, that's part of the mission speak. That, that was the headquarters, the beginning of the discipleship's, or, or the disciples' mission. And Jesus is going back to the beginning with them. But Galilee was also referenced as Galilee of the Gentiles, which I think speaks there's, there's more that's going to happen. And we're going to get to this next week. Go, therefore, preach the gospel to all nations. It starts there in, in Galilee. You see, if, if we put this together, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, we see that Jesus' death gives us forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death gives us eternal life. Jesus' death and resurrection give us joy. Jesus' death and resurrection gives us mission for living every single day, come what may. Jesus' death and resurrection speaks even to the torrential struggles of life. He rose from the dead. Anything else can fail. But Jesus will never fail. So you look at verses 8 and 10 and you read, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and told him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So they moved quickly. And I want you to notice something that Matthew does here. He emphasizes the women as the first witnesses. And that would not be common in that day. Again, because women were not trusted in a court of law in the first century. I think that that speaks to the truthfulness of this scenario. 
They're talking about the women seeing Jesus or seeing the empty tomb because they were the ones that saw it. They were the first ones. They were the witnesses. I think it also emphasizes God's love for men and women. And we see also in this that the women are the first evangelists as well. They're the ones going out with the good news first. Isn't that amazing? They're telling the disciples what happened. But they still have some fear. It says they have fear and great joy. And I can imagine that. You don't understand everything that's happening. He's risen from the dead. What is going on? He's risen. I don't have an, I, I'm trying to figure this out. But I just got to go and talk to them. Yay! Uh, fear and great joy. And they're moving quickly to the disciples. And then Matthew brings up the word again. Behold. Stop. Focus. What's going on? Behold. Jesus meets with the women. And he says, greetings, or some translations say rejoice. There's, there's no really great English word for this type of greeting, but it's a greeting of love and affection. It's kindness that Jesus gives to these women. And immediately, it says, they fall down at Jesus' feet. And they touch his feet, which, by the way, means this isn't just some kind of vision. That Jesus bodily rose from the dead. They cling to Christ and they worship him. And Jesus then confronts their fears again. Do not be afraid. The angel says it, but now Jesus says it. Do not be afraid. Why? I'm going to Galilee. The disciples are going to see me. I'm alive. They staked everything on Jesus and Jesus is saying, you are not disappointed. You will never be disappointed. Those who trust in him will not be, the Bible says, will not be put to shame. We are secure in Christ you know, as we've been studying through the book of Matthew, we've seen all sorts of people trying to find hope and significance through various means. People will turn to wealth. People will turn to sex. People will turn to authority, religion, irreligion, morality, immorality. And Jesus cuts through it all and says he's the only one who can give eternal security. When you die those things will not give you rescue in the sight of God. But because Jesus died and because he rose again, he will never fade away. And the world will have troubles and the world will lose things we love. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. Think about it. Matthew says the women had fear and great joy. Jesus doesn't say, can you just tone down the joy? He doesn't say that, does he? He just says, the fear, the fear, you have been released because I, because I have been set free from the grave and I've conquered it. So Jesus says to us, the resurrection says to us, do not be afraid, be filled with great joy. Joy. 
This is something in our lives as believers on Christ. We, we seek for joy in God. It's not in the trinkets of the world. And we fight for joy in God. Because he rose from the dead, we will not be put to shame. Our security is not in the temporal. Our security is in the eternal. What amazing love. If I can say this, when I think of these women and these women bowing down and worshiping Jesus at his feet, you know, did Jesus have to show up at that point in time? According to Matthew, was there an indication that Jesus was going to show up to these women there? No. The angel says he's going to be meeting the brothers in Galilee. So go tell the brothers. And yet Jesus shows up. And behold, Jesus shows up. It's it's as if to me, Jesus can't wait to tell his disciples, I'm alive. Your hope is secure. I'm here. I rescue you. I give you all you need. Jesus loves, loves to showcase his love for us. And we then respond with great joy. Great joy. Lord, help us to that end. We're going to sing in response to this this morning. And if you're a believer, I, I, I hope and pray that you would sing with joy. Jesus reigns. And he loves us. If you do not trust in Christ, I'd encourage you. We have have a room in the back. There's some people that would be willing to talk to you if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, if you have questions about what it means, uh, the resurrection, what that means. They'd be willing to talk to you about that. If you need to spend time just praying and focusing on the Lord, you you can do that in your seat. You could even give public testimony. If you need somebody else to pray with you here, you can come forward as well. But in this time, let's sing. Jesus reigns. He is good. He's resurrected, and so we have resurrection hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindnesses. Profuse kindnesses, Father. Your mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning because Jesus conquered the grave. There is no sting in death any longer for those of us who believe Because we have a hope that is secure, an anchor for the soul, a refuge. And God, I pray for everyone here in this room right now. That for those who reject you, I pray, God, that your spirit would Confront them in love and draw them to you. God, for those of us who believe on Christ, many probably in this room could confess their joy has waned. The thought of your death and resurrection has become cold. Father, I pray you would warm their hearts and give them a yearning for you today and this week. 
You say you will never leave us or forsake us. You're with us always to the end of the age and you who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And Father, even that verse shows us not not only as individuals do you make that promise, but you make that promise to your churches. Here, Father, at Ventura Baptist Church, we are praying, God, you would increase our passion for you, our love of you and our repentance in you and help us to love one another in it as well. May your joy be our strength. May your mission fill our minds and hearts because you are our pleasure and delight. In Jesus' name, amen. We hear these words as we close this time together. Now. Now. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.